By all accounts, the past couple years, uh, we've seen a little bit of turmoil, right? Um, two and a half years now, almost. Uh, we've seen this thing, COVID, that has been ushered into our reality. It's adjusted many things in our uh, everyday life. Uh, we've got now masks that are fairly normal, uh, vaccines, uh, inflation, uh, high gas prices, uh, war in Ukraine. I could go on and on and depress us even more, right? There's a lot of stuff going on in the world, right? How many of you guys have had a problem in the past two years? Raise your hand. How many problems today, right? Uh, trouble is all around us. It is a part of our everyday life. Uh, it's kind of crazy. And you know, one of the things that has been a reality, according to what I've read in studies, is the, the past two years has been especially problematic for the, the teenagers and our elderly. You know, it's really hit them hard. Depression and suicides are like off the charts. I've got a 94-year-old mother who lives in an assisted living facility in northern Florida. I call her multiple times a week. And over the past couple of years, uh, we used to talk a lot of sports. Now, every time, almost every time when I call her, oh, Carrie, you know, things are so awful. You know, things are so bad. You know, when's this all going to end? I hate it for her. I hate it at this stage of her life that things seem to be so gloom and doom. But that's the reality for so many people, right? We focus on all the trouble and problems of our world. We understand that there are problems in this world. You know what? In John 16, 33, which we're going to get there in a few weeks, but in John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So our trials, our tribulation, the struggles that we face really shouldn't be so much of a surprise to us as maybe they are because Jesus spoke into this reality, right, that in this world, there's going to be trouble. And, and somehow, sometimes believers believe that they are exempt from trouble, but that just simply isn't the case. You know, we all have trouble. We all have problems in life. And Jesus speaks into this, in, as we start chapter 14, a little bit of context, reaching back into chapter 13, we see Jesus at the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, Jesus takes this opportunity to speak to his disciples. And it's not always words of comfort that he's speaking to his disciples. He says things like this. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas slipply, uh, quickly slips out into the night. He talks about his impending leaving them, that he's going to leave them. Now, that's not the first time that he told them that he was going to leave. But man, the confusion and, you know, just going on in their life. And then he says, one of you is going to be a betrayer like Peter. Denier. You know, there's a lot going on at this Last Supper for these disciples to take in. And Jesus is sensing, he knows that they are troubled. They are troubled men. They have a troubled heart. It's not 
out of bounds to understand how they could have a troubled heart. For they didn't sign up for this. You know, they were thinking that Jesus was going to establish some kind of earthly kingdom that he was going to reign. Remember that they fought about who was going to be the greatest. So their conception of who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do was off target. And then Jesus starts talking these words, saying these things that made no sense to them. We can understand how they could be troubled, troubled men. The reality is that for those who have this struggle to some degree or another, I think that we will have this challenge of struggles until the end of our days. You know, they, the, the, the situation, the circumstances of our life change, but it doesn't change the reality that regardless of where we are at on the age spectrum, trouble comes to us. It's just a part of our reality. I have three adult children. You know, when they were middle school, high school age-ish, I can remember looking back and thinking, oh, you know, are they going to be on on time? Who are they hanging out with? Are they being under good influences? Are they riding safely in a car? Are they driving safely? Are they wearing their seatbelt? You know, all the things that parents have to can be concerned about, right? And I can remember thinking back to those days thinking, oh, I can't wait until they're adults and then I don't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah. It was a lie, right? I was lying to myself to think that all that was going to go away. Now I still have three adult grown children, and now I've got grandkids. Now I have more things to be concerned about, worried about, tempted to worry about. See, that worry factor never really goes away from our life. We're going to pick up in reading in John 14, starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bible or your app, go ahead and turn there. And I'm going to read this passage as we go through my outline this morning. And let's break it down. And I really think that Jesus speaks into these disciples' worry, to their worry. And, and, and a cure for worry may be a cure for a troubled heart. I think he gives us some idea of how to overcome the trouble that they're experiencing. The first point is trust Jesus, the person. Trust in who Jesus is. In verse one, it says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So here it is, it's a command to trust in Jesus. It's an imperative to trust in Jesus. Basically, he's saying, I see that you have a troubled heart. Don't go there. I've got this. Don't worry. I was thinking, I saw it not too long ago, this little kid fell, and his dad rushes over to him, and he brushes off his knees, and says, hey, put, pass, pass him on the, the fanny, and he says, oh, you got this, don't worry about it, it's just a little scrape, and then the kid goes running off. Well, it seems maybe a little bit dismissive. I think there are a couple of things going on there. You know, the dad is trying to instill confidence that, you know, that little tumble that the kid took is not going to be detrimental to that kid. But I think as Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, don't be troubled. I've got this. Trust me. I think there's a similar context there that Jesus is really saying, trust in me. I've got this. We know what you're going through is not the end all. Trust me. I've got this. And then Jesus says, and I'm sorry, in Philippians 4, Paul says this, 
The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, we can be tempted to have a troubled heart, can't we? We can be tempted to focus on our circumstances, the situations of our life, when God wants us to have the peace of God. And the peace of God that surpasses human understanding. You know, the things of the world, the things that the world worries about should not be the same things that the believer worries about. Why? Because we trust in a sovereign creator who is Lord of all. And Jesus says, it's a call to believe. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Once again, in the book of John, we see Jesus equating himself, that the Father and he are one, that there is a unity there, that Jesus is indeed deity. And to be clear, for these disciples, he wasn't speaking of a saving faith, but rather he was speaking to those that were already following him closely and committed to him in a discipleship way. You and I, if we are in Christ, if we know Jesus as our savior, we still need that encouragement in our lives today, don't we? We need that encouragement to trust Jesus. He's got this. He, he is faithful. I can put my trust in him alone. Instead of giving into a troubled heart, Jesus told them firmly, to trust in him that he has got this. So the first step to our troubled heart is to trust in Jesus, to trust in him alone. And Jesus is not really giving them a formula, but he's asking them to enter into that relationship, the relationship of trusting in him. The second thing I see is trust Jesus' preparation. In verses two and three, it says, in my father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus goes from this, trust me, I've got this. But not only have I got this, but I am preparing a way for you. I'm doing something incredible. I'm preparing for you a home. Jesus spoke with complete confidence of his eternal dwelling place. There is a confidence that we should grab hold of, that this life, when it ends, is not all there is to life and to living. That for those of us that are in Christ, that there is an eternal home waiting for us in heaven. What an incredible act of love as he is preparing a home for his disciples. Not the exact way that the disciples might have thought was going to come about, for we know that Jesus' path was to the cross, to die a horrific death, to be buried, to be resurrected. But Jesus prepares a welcome. Jesus prepares a welcome for his disciples. I watch a little bit of HGTV, and whenever there's a remodel going on for a couple that's pregnant, you can bet that that remodeler, whoever it is, is going to do a makeover for the nursery. It's just going to happen, right? And you see this couple, you know, it's the big reveal at the end of the show. The big reveal is this beautiful nursery. And all of a sudden, the tears start streaming, right? They've got gotcha. you. It's beautiful. 
That baby has a great new place to reside, a home. Well, that's a far cry from a great picture of what Jesus has done for us. But nonetheless, that confidence, that assurance that Jesus is creating a dwelling place for us, putting our trust and faith in him, that there is an eternal home. And another thing we see is that Jesus takes this initiative. Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. He says, I go, I go and prepare a place for you. He's doing it. No one's going to take Jesus' life. He willingly lays it down. And Jesus promises a future presence. The end of verse 3 says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So see, even if these disciples were kind of getting the idea that there was going to be a separation, Jesus was assuring them that one day they would be united one day they would come together. It's a very precious promise to the early church, isn't it? It's great to know that Jesus has affirmed this idea that this, this separation that's going to go on, the separation that you and I experience right now, will only be temporary. It could very well be what Paul is alluding to in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left into the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord always. You know, it's tempting to think of heaven to be about pearly gates and streets of gold and no more suffering, no more pain. All may be true. But the greatest thing about heaven is being in the presence of our Savior. It's being united with Jesus. And then we see this. Number three is trust Jesus' proclamation. Trust Jesus' proclamation. In verse 4, it says, And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember, Jesus had told them that he was going to go to the Father before, but they just didn't grasp it. They didn't understand it. And here he is saying it again. But Thomas ask this honest question. He, 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 he says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. We don't understand. You know, and maybe Thomas was still at that place where he was thinking that there was, he, Jesus was going to depart to another city, another village. You know, maybe there was some kind of like, tell us where so we can get there. I love the honesty of Thomas. You know, there is clearly this intimate relationship between Jesus and his disciples that reinforces this idea of the honesty, even when we don't understand, to ask appropriate questions. And we as followers have that freedom in our relationship with Christ to acknowledge the things that we don't understand or we struggle with. But Thomas says, Lord, where are you going? I think that he reveals, Jesus reveals an exclusive claim. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Many have said that these are the most offensive words in Scripture. 
that when Jesus says that he and he alone is the way, that it's offensive to a watching world, that we should be more inclusive of those who may not agree with a singular path. Maybe there are a lot of paths to heaven. Some have said this is the most difficult thing for them to accept in scripture about Jesus saying that he is the only way. But you know what? I think it's one of the most comforting things for us as believers to know that he's not left open this door of, you know, maybe there's multiple ways. Maybe you'll find the right way. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We could have a whole sermon on this one verse. But I think this, when Jesus says that he is the way, Jesus didn't say that he was going to show them the way, but he said he is the person of the way. He says that he is the truth. All truth rests in Jesus. And he says that he is the life. See, Jesus didn't offer us the secrets to life, but he said he is the very substance of life. And we can look at the way, the truth, and the life in many different ways. We can try to find these elements, that void inside of us through social status, through profession, through monetary financial gain. We can look in so many ways to try to fill that void. But Jesus says, it's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nothing is going to fill you apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We can look horizontally or we can look vertically. Jesus says, I am the answer to all of your horizontal struggles and challenges. All the troubles, all of the turmoil of life, the answer is me. And then Jesus says, no one comes to the Father. It's this exclusive journey. It's the exclusivity of the way to the Father is through the blood of Jesus. Jesus, looking at his impending death, it was coming. The willingness that he had on his part to suffer a cruel death, to be buried and resurrected for you and I, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. He knew exactly what was coming his way. The pathway to God, the Father, is through the blood of Jesus. Peter boldly affirmed this in Acts 4.12. says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It simply is Jesus and Jesus alone. See the postmodern belief that there are many pathways to heaven, that there are many truths, is simply a lie. You know, either Jesus' claim to be the way is the answer, or it's not. You can't add Jesus' testimony of who he is to a multitude of other ways and to think that Jesus is a way. He's either the way or he's no way. For Jesus claims that he is the truth, the life. He is the only legitimate way to the Father. That testimony can be very offensive in a world who likes inclusion and openness, but I think it's reassuring to those of us that know the word of God, that God has given us this single path of salvation through the blood of Jesus. John Piper, author and pastor, says this about this passage. He said, this truth 
is the message of the book of John and the watershed that divides true from false views of Christ. It's important to recognize the importance of this verse. He is the way, the truth, and the life. See, if you're banking on works, if you think that your good deeds are going to get you to heaven, it's not. It says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. There's one way to the Father. It's through the blood of Jesus. There is an exclusive oneness. Exclusive oneness. In verses 7 through 11, it says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. But Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak To you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does these works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus explained why he is the only way, because he and the Father are one. There is a oneness with Jesus and the Father. It's once again identifying, Jesus identifying his deity, that he and the Father are one. He says, from now on, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Peter, you've watched me. And as you've watched me, you've watched the Father work. Philip means, that, that, that means for Philip, I'm sorry, Philip had been close to Jesus, yet he still did not understand it. Even though he was following for these three years, watching Jesus, he was still trying to grasp who Jesus was and what he was all about. And was he God? It gives us a little bit of compassion for these disciples that followed closely to understand how close one can be and still miss eternity. Jesus says, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. See, everything that Jesus said was in alignment, in an alignment with the Father. Trusting in the person and work of Jesus is a way to overcome our troubled hearts the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his oneness with the Father. And then the last point, trust in Jesus' promise. Trust in Jesus' promise. Jesus tells his disciple that even though he is going to depart and go to his Father, that the work on earth is not finished. You know, some of these disciples may have been thinking that they got this demotion, that they were out of a job, that who they're going to follow But Jesus speaks these words, and the truth is that they've got a promotion. It says, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. So you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Incredible act of love. You know, these disciples who may have totally been struggling with understanding what was happening here, now Jesus gives them the ultimate commission that you are going to work for me. And we're going to see in coming verses about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that allowed these disciples to spread the gospel far and wide. First and foremost, 
was those who believe in me. Those who believe in me. See, it's the encouragement to the disciples that those who believe in what I am doing, that I and the Father are one, are going to be my ambassadors to the world. Those who believe will do. They're going to do the work that Jesus has assigned them. And not only the work, but it says greater works. Now, tomorrow when I record my Beyond the Notes podcast, I'm going to address these couple verses because I think there's so much that could be unpacked in these greater works. And oftentimes, it's so misunderstood. You know, somebody could look at the greater works and go, well, I can, just do, I can, I can do more things than Jesus. I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. I think it's, it's greater in magnitude. You know, Jesus would, ministered basically in Palestine, but these disciples would spread the gospel around the world. Within the first century, the Gentiles had heard the good news of the gospel. The greater works is more, not sensational, but greater in magnitude. The works of the apostles after the resurrection were not greater in kind than those of Jesus, but greater in the sphere of influence. And it's amazing. It's amazing to know how great our Jesus is. And yet through the power of the Holy Spirit working through these disciples, God used them to change the world. You and I are benefactors of that gospel, the good news. Why? Because Jesus goes to the Father. Jesus goes to the Father, empowering his disciples to spread the good news of the gospel all in alignment with God's plan. You know, it says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Some people see that as a, like a blank check. You know, they, I can ask whatever I want as long as I ask it in the name of Jesus and Jesus is gonna honor that. It's not at all what that means. You know, I, in alignment with the will of the Father, pray in Jesus' name. Uh, you and I, we, we oftentimes struggle with really knowing the will of the Father first and foremost. But clearly, when God has given us the truth of Scripture, we can't pray for things that go against what we know God's will for us is and expect him to honor that. You know, if you've had a run-in with a family member or a friend or a coworker, and you say, God, I want, you know, vengeance on them. Well, God's not going to honor a prayer like that. That's not the way it works at all. We ask in accordance to God's will and God's plan. The test of any prayer is, can I make it in Jesus' name? Can I pray this in the name of Jesus? So while the circumstances of the disciples can be very troubling for sure, Jesus assures them, that the hope for a troubled heart is to trust in me. He's got this. This whatever is coming their way, he's got this. And while he may be leaving them, he's going to still work through them because he's made a way. In our troubled lives, the events, situations, circumstances can surely be a little overwhelming at time. But it's helpful to be reminded that Jesus has got this, that he is in control. 
that we need to keep our eyes focused on him and not the things of this world. See, for many in this room, maybe you've never trusted in Jesus alone the first time. Maybe you've never crossed that, that, that line of saying, Jesus, I recognize that you alone paid the ultimate price for my sin, and you need to make that trusting decision this morning. But for many of you in here, I am confident that you know Jesus as your Savior. But like the disciples, you need an encouraging word, a reminder that Jesus has whatever you're facing, that he is faithful. In our closing song this morning, we're going to sing, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. One of the verses goes like this. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart my sword to fight the cruel deceiver and my shield against his hateful darts. My song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrow rise, my joy when trials are abounding, your faithfulness my refuge in sight. I'm wondering how many of us this morning have come into this place with a troubled heart, undoubtedly focused on the things that are going on in our world, maybe our personal situation, our circumstances, rather than the all-sufficiency all sufficiency of our creator, that he is faithful. Maybe this morning, it is that reminder that you need that he is able, that he's got this. May today, once again, you put your faith and trust in the only one that is able to conquer whatever you face. The circumstance of our lives will continually change throughout the course of our life, undoubtedly. But God remains faithful, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our faithful, our faithful God, and he is worthy of all of our trust.